We have uh, another opportunity to be in God's Word this morning, but we have a guest speaker who will be bringing the Word to us, Daniel Golan. I'm going to invite Daniel up. Uh, Daniel and I go actually a ways back, uh, but most recently, uh, Daniel is on staff at Christ City Church, and uh, he is planning on planting a church in Surrey. You are the uh, church planting apprentice, right, at Christ yeah. City? So that's why you're planting a church. So it's going to be in North Surrey, and we're excited about that. As you know, we're excited about planting churches, so we're going to look for some opportunities to support Daniel and Christ City as they do this. Uh, but for right now, Daniel, I'd love to pray for you before you, before you bring the word. Lord God, we do, we do thank you for an opportunity to come together once again uh, to sit under the teaching of your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you for Daniel. Thank you, God, for the time he spent in prayer and study. And Lord, I just pray that uh, it would be a fruitful time for us. Lord, that uh, we would hear what you want us to hear. Uh, Lord, that uh, our minds, our, our, our hearts, and our ears would be open. And we thank you, Lord, for the desire uh, to plant a church. God, I pray your blessing upon that endeavor. I pray, God, for all the, the details that come to it. And uh, Lord, most of all, I pray uh, for your power, Lord, to be unleashed as, as new gospel um, churches are planted. Lord, we want for people to hear that gospel, hear that good news, and be saved. And so I pray that for us today. May we hear it again. And Lord, for uh, what you've called Daniel to as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, you, you need to know it is really encouraging to be here, to see um, what God has been doing here in this church. I remember uh, five years ago, uh, right before this church planted, working at Crossridge, just excited to see what God would do. And then the way he has brought you together to make the fame and deeds of God known here in this area is, is such a blessing to me, especially as I prepare to, to plant a church in Surrey. Uh, I am planting next September uh, in Guilford, Fleetwood area. And so if you do know someone who lives in that area who's disconnected to the church, would love for uh, you to let them know and to connect them with me and the church. And then please just pray. Uh, pray for people to come and serve. Pray for worship leaders. Pray for chair setter-uppers. Pray for chair put-awayers. Um, just pray that the Lord would assemble a body of people who would uh, seek to save the lost in Surrey. Well, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to open it up to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea 4, 10 to 19 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Uh, I want to read it for us. It'll be on the screen behind you. But if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back uh, in the foyer. I encourage you to pick one up as well. God's word says this, they shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Haven, and swear not as, if, as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? 
Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. In the year 2005, David Foster Wallace gave the commencement address at a liberal arts college. Wallace was a brilliant thinker and considered by many to be one of the most influential writers at the time in the United States. He began his commencement address this way, with a story. Two fish are swimming along. And they come across an older fish. The older fish addresses, addresses the two young fish and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish keep swimming along. And eventually, one fish turns to the other and says, What the heck is water? W- Wallace's point is that some things are so obvious to us that they're actually easily missed. Some of the most easy things to say, see are actually the most difficult things to see. And so what is it that he says is going on every moment, every day, in every person? He says, it's worship. Worship is the water we swim in. He says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the wicked mother goddess, or the four noble truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll never, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Now, you'll you'll be interested to know that Wallace was not a Christian. He's an atheist which makes, I think, what he says here all the more compelling. He's saying everybody elevates something. We all praise something. We hold something up because we want that thing to give us value and meaning and worth in life. The case of the Bible is that it's God who should be worshipped. That it's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's to be elevated above all other things. Because it's this God that created the world. He's therefore greater than all things. He's more dependable than all things. And he is more worthy of praise than all things. Now, what happens when you worship something more or less than you ought to? You commit what the Bible calls 
idolatry. Augustine, the early church thinker, said that August, uh, idolatry is just disordered desires. We, it's not necessarily worshiping a bad thing. It's worshiping a good thing more or less than something else you ought to be worshiping instead. So money is not bad. What is bad, though, is elevating money above people. Food is a gift from the Lord, but to cherish food above our own health, that's idolatrous. But most devastating of all is to worship anything above God. And thus, idolatry is actually not a primitive problem. Idolatry is an everyday, every person, all the time problem. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look at this text Israel finds themselves in the midst of idolatry, and we can learn something from them. So I want us to see four things. The draw of idolatry, the disappointment of idolatry, the devastation of idolatry, and lastly, the defeat of idolatry. So firstly, the draw or the appeal of idolatry. Look at verse 10 to 14 again. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery." I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. At the time Hosea is writing this, the nation of Israel feels very small. Now, Israel has always been a very small nation relative to the constant, ever-changing superpowers that surrounds them. It's this incredible feat that they're not destroyed by now. God has placed them in the middle of all these important trade routes. But right now, especially, the nation of Assyria is growing, and they're pressing in on Israel, and so Israel feels especially weak. And so Israel wants something that they can hold on to, Something they can grasp. Something that can give them hope that things will be okay in the future. And so, what do they want? They want significance, security, and satisfaction. Significance, security, and satisfaction. And they're not sure Yahweh can give them those things. They had been wed to Yahweh, so to speak, right? God saved the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them across the Red Sea. He brought them into the promised land. He made the nation of Israel his own. He had declared the nation of Israel to be his bride. But now they go, I just don't know if Yahweh can give me this security, satisfaction, and significance. And so I'm going to turn to, well, they decide to turn to Assyria. They decide to put their faith in Assyria. Assyria, look, if you just don't destroy us, if you just protect us, we'll pay you a whole bunch of money. We'll, we'll be indebted to you. We'll pay all these taxes. 
The thing is, that's costly. And where are they going to get this money from? Where are they going to get all these crops from? Well, they decide to commit spiritual adultery with another god, the god Baal. Now, Baal was a fertility god of sorts. Baal would help you have children. It would send rain so your crops would grow. Those cattle you have could eat those crops and so they could have children. And so how do you get Baal to give you those things? Well, you do what the Bible calls sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic. The idea is this. You have sex on earth and that will stir up arouse Baal to have his own sort of sex with his other goddess, Asherah. And then when the two of them engage together, when he climaxes, well, that's the rain. Thank you, Matt, for giving me this text. (laughs) So, So you want rain? Well, you engage in your own sort of physical adultery and and sex on earth. That's why it says, verse 14, these men are engaging in sacrifices with cult prostitutes. That's their purpose, to arouse Baal up above. So do you you see what worshiping Baal is, is trying to give them? Significance, security, satisfaction, because Baal could send crops for your plants to grow. For he would give you wine for you to enjoy. He would give you children who could work the field for you and one day join the military and he'll protect you. And least of all, not, leastly not, not least not, thank you, that's how it's said. He would give you intimacy and pleasure of sex itself. See, ultimately, the reason we engage in idolatry is because we want some sort of semblance of control. We want control. The, the Bible. If you, if you think of the most devastating account of idolatry, it'd probably be the um, construction of the golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, Israel is standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain talking with God, and Aaron decides that he will build the people an idol, the golden calf. Have you ever thought, though, why Aaron decides to build a golden calf? Why not some other animal, some eagle or lion? Well, you see, um, when Israel left Egypt, one of the major gods in Egypt was Apis, the bull god. When they were going into Canaan, the god there would be El, another bull god. But now Israel is at the foot of the mountain. You need to know this. There is smoke on the mountain. There is fire on the mountain, lightning, and the earth is shaking beneath them. And they go, we are terrified. And we don't want a God like that. And so we want a new type of God. You know, these bull gods seem to be working for these other people. But bulls are frightening also. You can't really control a bull. So let's make a kind of bull, like a baby bull like a calf, something we can control, something we can manipulate, something that will make us feel safe still. You you see, we're drawn to idolatry because it puts us in the driver's seat. Significance, security, and satisfaction begin to depend on me. So why do we, for example, worship beauty? 
Well, because I can control that. I can eat certain things. I can exercise. I can put together my wardrobe so I look a certain way. I'm perceived a certain way. And then my culture will love me. They'll think I'm important and they'll open up certain doors for me. What about kids? Why, why do we idolize our kids? Because if I can just get them to obey, if they can achieve some sort of job or position in life, if they achieve some sort of musical excellence or athletic excellence, well, that says something about me. I'm a good parent then. And then people will look up to me. And maybe one day my children will care for me and, and help me when I'm old. So take your pick. What's, what's the idol that you're chasing after? What are you looking to to give you this worth? See, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're good things, but they're good things become ultimate so that you can be in control and so that you don't have to trust God anymore. Secondly, then, the disappointment of idolatry. Disappointment. Look at verse 10 and 11. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. They have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Israel is putting their hope in Baal, and God is trying to warn them here that Baal will let them down, that he will not be able to satisfy them, that he will disappoint them. See, there's two temptations I think we face when we begin to feel disappointed with those things we're putting our hope in. The first temptation is just press deeper. Just try harder. Go, go a little bit more into that thing, right? I think we get a sense of this in verse 12. This is why it's called a, a spirit of whoredom. And verse 17 says Ephraim is joined to idols, right? This becomes this all-consuming thing. This is my life. My whole being is devoted to this idol. The problem with this, though, is that it's just an endless pursuit. It's just an endless pursuit. Richard Lentz wrote a book called Identity and Idolatry, and he talks about this dangerous cyclic pattern of trying to find satisfaction in an idol. He puts it this way. An idol is desired as a means to an end, but a strange reality sets in with the idols. Since significance and security cannot be fulfilled by the idol, the idol creates a deeper longing for that which it cannot provide. This results in a chasing after the idol, driven by the conviction that eventually that idol will somehow provide. The cycle repeats itself. Longing provides the opportunity to chase, and chasing creates a deeper longing. Effectively, the idol possesses the one who fashioned it. D don't miss what he's saying here. We pursue idols because we think it puts us in control. But the reality is the idols control us. The idols give us salt water to drink. Just enough to satisfy and yet we just long for more. I just need more of it. I need more of it. I need more of that thing. It's never fully satisfying me. And what does this lead us to do? Well, whatever it takes, right or wrong, to get that thing. If kids become an idol and they don't live up to my expectations, well, I become harsh. I punish them. 
I become relentless. If money becomes my idol, well, then I neglect my family to work more. I steal, even just Wi-Fi or some streaming service, just to pad the wall a little bit. But I got to have it. It doesn't matter. I need it because then I'll be satisfied. And we feel so close, like we're just about there, and yet we remain the same distance away we were before. We become like dogs chasing our own tail. And I think that we become most disappointed when we actually catch our tail. Um, I, I uh, read this survey that was published recently. And the survey was looking at people evaluating themselves on which uh, so- social class they fall into. So they asked a bunch of people, hey, you make this much money. Do you consider yourself to be lower class, working class, middle class, or upper class? And please hear, this is in the United States, so like $1 is like 10 of our dollars. And this is before the recession, so they have more money. So they asked, okay, you make $60,000 or more. Which class do you fall into? The vast majority said middle class. You make over $75,000 a year, middle class. $90,000 a year. Still in the middle class. Over $110,000 a year. Still more than 50% said they live in the middle class. $130,000. Still middle class. $150,000. Still in the middle class. I make more than $170,000 plus. And people said, I'm still in the middle class. I'm trying to think through, why is that? How can you make many multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars and still consider yourself middle class. And I think, I mean, yes, there are the super billionaires of the world. But I think the other reason is people are afraid. People are afraid to admit that they've been chasing after an idol and that they finally have reached it and that they still feel dissatisfied. They feel like, if only I just had a little bit more money and finally I was in the upper class, well, then I would have enough. And so, of course, I don't feel like I have enough. So that means, of course, I'm not in the upper class. I listened um, to a sermon recently, and Cynthia Heimel was quoted. She was a writer for The Village Voice a paper in uh, New York City. She had the privilege of knowing a bunch of celebrities before they came famous. And she says this, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. They, she gives a bunch of names, were once perfect, pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Now, I disagree with what she says about God playing a practical joke on people. But you need to hear what she's saying. That it's a tragedy to admit that you've attained what you're seeking after because it will crush you. Crush you to realize it hasn't satisfied you. 
So what are our two temptations? Press deeper, I gotta have more of it. Or you just go find another idol, right? Isn't this what verse 18 says? When their drink is gone, that didn't work. They give themselves to whoring. Their rulers love, dearly love shame. I tried this thing, didn't work for me. That idol must suck. There must be a better God out there. Try this thing. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit closer. Still wasn't good enough. Move on to this thing. And just this never-ending cycling through of different idols. Different things we're going to put our hope in. And, and Hosea is saying, look, you need to hear this. They're never going to satisfy you. They, they can't. None of them will ever satisfy you. Because he says, look, they're wood. These gods are no real gods at all. Verse 12 says, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. And then he says this in verse 13. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hill under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Please don't miss the irony there. He's saying, look, you worship by a tree. You just cut down that tree and now you worship it. You killed that tree, and now you're putting your hope in it? If you can cut it down, if you can sculpt it, if you can print it, if you can manipulate it, it cannot satisfy you. Listen, please, Tri-City, you are too valuable. You are too precious to, for God to let anything other than himself to delight you. You have a God-sized hole in your heart. And only the God who made you in his image can fill it. Thirdly, the devastation of idolatry. Idols don't just disappoint you, they'll also devastate you. Verse 14 says this, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people shall, without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? The Hebrew in this section is incredibly poetic and actually very difficult to, to translate. It's hard to fully understand. We get the general gist of it, but there's some things that we're just not totally sure about. And one of those is probably in verse 14. Instead of reading, I will not punish, it's likely that Hosea instead is actually drawing emphasis, and he's actually meaning, I will not only punish your daughters. He's, tr he's trying to say, look, it's not just your daughters that are going to be punished for the physical adultery. I'm going to also punish the men, those who are leading the daughters into this sin. And he says, look, the, the reason or the end of this punishment, he says, verse 14, is ruin. It's death. Verse 16, that word for uh, a broad pasture, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? That word broad pasture is elsewhere translated in the Bible, Sheol. It's the place of the underworld, the place where you go when you die. And so Hosea is saying, you put your trust in these things, in the end you'll be destroyed. And that's what happens. In the year 722, Assyria turns on Israel, walks in, and destroys them, annihilates the entire nation. 
Now, to hear this warning of upcoming destruction would have shocked the nation of Israel. They probably would have laughed. Because at the time when Hosea is giving them this word, things are going quite well, actually. They're living in a season of general prosperity under King Jeroboam. They don't think they have anything to fear. But God is trying to warn them, look, that's going to change. Very soon, things are going to change. And if you don't trust in me, whatever else you trust in is going to just let you down and destroy you. In in, um, his book, Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore describes the process of killing cattle. It turns out there's a lot of money involved in this process. Scientists have found out that uh, cows uh, emit a certain hormone when they're afraid that actually ruins the quality of meat if they're turned to meat. Uh, And so they, they have come up with this entire process to retain the quality of meat. And so um, it turns out you're not supposed to yell. You don't use cattle prods. Instead, you quietly lead the cattle onto a ramp. You put them through a squeeze chute, which mimics their mother's nuzzling touch. You lead them down a smooth, curving path, which has no sudden turns. And it's they feel like, the the scientists say, like they're going home. Eventually, the conveyor belt lifts them off the ground, and in the blink of an eye, a surgical strike is ushered between their eyes, and livestock becomes meat. That process is called, the scientists call it, the stairway to heaven. The stairway to heaven. The moment you think nothing is going wrong, Everything is fine is maybe the moment we are most in most danger of falling prey to idolatry. The devil loves to conceal your future. It's what he did in the garden. You'll not surely die. Things are going to work out okay. Things are going well in your life. Don't be afraid. Just keep chugging along. Keep trusting in that thing. It'll pay off in the end. And God's trying to pull back the curtain and says, no, no, you need to know. If you keep trusting in this thing, eventually it'll lead to ruin. It'll lead to your death. But, but trusting in idols isn't just devastating for us. It also has devastating consequences for those around us. L- listen to verse 13 again. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore... Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. Why are these girls engaging in physical adultery? Because the rest of the nation is engaging in spiritual adultery. The moment this nation is saying, yeah, we know God's our groom. We know we're wed to God. We know he's ours and we're his. But if he doesn't satisfy you, just go find some other God. Well, what is that communicating to these daughters? You don't feel satisfied in your marriage? Just go elsewhere. Go get it from some other man. See, idolatry, it doesn't just affect us. It pulls others into this destructive vortex, which is why verse 15 is a warning to the nation of Judah. Verse 15 says, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon. Um, those are not just ordinary places. Beth-Avon is another name for Bethel. It was the place where Jacob dreamed of, of God's ladder and the angels ascending and descending into heaven. 
It was where God promised him the promised land. Gilgal, that's the, the place where Israel camped right after they crossed the Jordan River. In flood season, on dry land, by power of God. They set up a monument there to dedicate to the Lord, to, rem to remind them of the Lord's faithfulness. Gilgal was the place they camped before they, they went into battle against Jericho by just walking around the city. Th these are not insignificant places of commemorating God's goodness and faithfulness to Israel, and yet they had become places of idolatry. They were idol centers at this time. And so look, it doesn't matter how valuable these places once were, reminding them of who God is. They need to know that they can be easily led astray. D.A. Carson asks, how many generations does it take for a church to die? How many generations does it take for a church to die? He's a, he's a Canadian theologian. He says one. Just one. One generation believes the gospel the next generation assumes the gospel, and the following generation, he says, denies the gospel. But the moment any generation assumes the gospel instead of believes the gospel, all is lost. The moment one generation says, yeah, we know about God. Yeah, we know God's there. But there's this whole other thing that I would like also, maybe even more than God. We've lost. Christianity is lost. That's false faith. That's false worship. Now you need to hear this. Israel didn't stop worshiping Yahweh. They just worshiped Yahweh and Baal. They just assumed Yahweh will be there. He's always been there. Come on. Baal can provide. We can give us something else that maybe Yahweh won't give us. But it just leads to destruction. May we be people who worship God and God alone. May we be people who are saved and who also save those around us. Lastly then, the defeat of idolatry. The defeat of idolatry. How is the problem of idolatry overcome? Um, let, me, let, me, let me do it this way. Um, Mosh Halbertal was a Jewish scholar and he wrote a book on idolatry, and he wrestled with this concept of idolatry being spiritual adultery. Idolatry as spiritual adultery. And he says the, the dilemma is this. On one hand, idolatry demands the punishment of death. That's what the Bible lays out. Those who commit idolatry deserve to die. They've committed an act of rebellion and treason against the one true God. So on one hand, spiritual adultery leads to death. But at the same time, Israel's the bride. And God loves the bride. And God wants the bride back. And so he needs to punish Israel and at the same time forgive and, and reconcile Israel. And he goes, I guess the metaphor isn't good enough. I, I, guess, I guess the analogy just falls short. You just, you can't, you can't have both. But, but the truth of the Bible, the truth we see in Jesus is that we can have both. Because even though Israel was in Sheol, in the place of death, God sends Jesus first to earth and then into Sheol, into death to redeem his bride. It's Jesus who actually pays the penalty of Israel and of us for our sins of idolatry. 
It's Jesus who should be worshipped and yet is instead mocked in his death. It's Jesus who takes a piece of wood crafted into a cross and then dies upon it to forgive us, to redeem us. If we trust in him and him alone, we are reconciled to the God who loves us. And yet we still struggle. I know that, but it's not in my heart. I know that God saves me and forgives me. And yet I'm still drawn to all these idols. So how do I overcome that? Let me end, let me end with this story. Um, Oprah Winfrey joined Stephen Colbert on his show six years ago. And they happened to discuss and, and share with one another their favorite Bible passages. Stephen Colbert ser- shared something from Matthew 11. Do not be anxious, he shares, because you can't add one extra hour of life to your head. And then uh, Oprah shares hers, and she shares a passage or a verse from Psalm 37. The verse is this. Delight thyself, she used the King James Version, delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And she should have ended things there, but she decided to keep talking, and she says, what this means for me is that if I'm a force of good in the world, good will come back my way. She says, it's the third law of motion. It's karma. It's the golden rule. And she just butchers all of it. But look, I I think Oprah's understanding of that verse can actually be very similar to many of our understandings. But the point of that verse is not God will give you whatever you want if you're a good Christian. The, The point is not do good things and God will give you whatever you want. The point is God will give you whatever you want, but first he changes what you want delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I'm thinking about Jesus. I can't believe that he loves me, that I'm acceptable in his eyes, that God would actually choose to die for me and that blows me away. And so all of a sudden, what is it that I want? I want God to be glorified above all else. I want him to be held up high. I want the world to worship him above all else. He is more precious than anything else this world can offer me, I realize. And that's what we need to think of. Desire God. and Let him change the desires of your heart. So yes, look to that piece of wood. But remember, it was Jesus who hung there. And let that lead you to praise him and live for him in all that you do. Let me pray for us. Father, there is none like you. God, there is no God who gives themselves up for us. God, we thank you for giving us Jesus, your one and only son, so that we might be reconciled to you. Father, I pray, would you smash the idols of our heart? Father, by the power of your spirit, would you transform our lives to delight in you above all else? Father, help us to see that nothing but you can satisfy, nothing but you can save. Lord, do this work for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.